Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, maybe you're not ladies and gentlemen. This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and uh, we're going to be talking to you this week, uh, ending Friday, February 2nd, 2024, about what happened in the market this week and some cool new demographics. Boy, does that make me sound like a nerd. Cool new demographics. Look at this about employment. And women are more employed now than men as far as those trying to find jobs. And we'll talk about that in some detail. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good day. I'm used to saying good morning on the radio, so it's got to find our time and space. It's a little bit of dimensional insecurity going on around here. But uh, good day to you all. Before we even jump into what happened this week, we got a quick disclosure to throw in. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, which is an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. The SEC doesn't, because they're regi we're registered with them, doesn't give us any kind of anointment or praise or anything else. That's just the regulatory authority. Um, and just because we're registered to give investment advice doesn't mean we can do it on a podcast because we have to know everybody involved. Uh, we do deem all the information we're discussing today to be accurate, but we're not guaranteeing it. We're getting it from good sources, if you consider the government and the Wall Street Journal and places like that good sources, that's debatable. Uh, but we deem them to be semi-reliable, at least. Um, so what happened this week in the market? Well, it closed out the week at another, the S&P 500 closed out the week at another record, and the rest of the market didn't, which is pretty standard these days. The S&P 500 stock index, otherwise affectionately known as the SPX, was kind of in a funk on Wednesday, and it was sliding downhill. Because uh, the Fed chairman said, uh, we really are not in any rush to cut interest rates and don't expect imminent short rate cuts coming up. Just as a side and, note, that's pretty much what he said at the last meeting too, but it was shocking somehow this time. And it kind of went downhill because there had been like a 50%, according to the surveys, a 50% probability that they would cut um, interest rates in March. Um, these, these guys need to all lose their job as bookies. They're, they're, I mean... The Federal Reserve for the past eight years has been spot on on their predictions on what they're going to do at the next meeting. And still somebody said 50% of chance of it going down. That's just silly. And yet yeah, it's silly. Uh, and then it got even more silly because good economic news is what these people who were selling didn't want to see because it would mean the Fed would be less likely to cut interest rates soon. So on Thursday and Friday, good economic news started coming out, and of course the market started up. Oh no, and good economic news, run away. Yes. And it started up, and uh, at the end of the week it closed at a record, 49.58.61, up 1.38% for the week. Now this is a very important point. That good economic news came on the heels of and with earnings reports from the Magnificent Seven, and all but two of them are coming out with earnings reports that are and forecasts that are significantly higher than anyone expected, which means that five of the seven went up dramatically, which raised the S&P 500 stock index, but did not do a lot of good for the rest of the market. 
So uh, it closed at 49.58.61, like I said. That surge leaves it almost 4% higher than it was at the beginning of the year and up nearly 20% from this time last year, not to mention 3.38% higher than its record close back in January 2022. That's all wonderful. We follow another index, the CRSP, U.S. Mid-Cap Value Index. We like that index. We think it's very significant. It also indicates what's going on as well as anything else does. In the underlying market, the underlying stock market, minus the seven big stocks that are driving the trade in the SPX. So uh, it actually went up a quarter point, 20.25% since last week to 2489.48. It remains about 1% lower than what it was at the beginning of the year, though. And it's about 4% below its record close in early 2022. So there's very definitely, there are two markets out there. And while the Standard & Poor's 500 stock index and to a lesser extent, the Dow is being driven by these very large tech companies. The NASDAQ has also got some of them in it, so it's being driven by that. The rest of the market, which is a lot of stocks, just isn't joining in. It's rising slowly. It's slogging higher. Certainly not it, exciting. It's, it's, yeah, it's just nothing to write home about. So if you're not in the Magnificent Seven, uh, you're not seeing your portfolio if you've got a stock portfolio rise the same way. Now, here's the negative to this. Back in the late 1990s, the last half of the 1990s, 19, actually about 1994 through 2000, we saw the same behavior. There were a few, relatively few high-tech companies that were driving the S&P 500 higher and higher and higher, while the more mundane indices or indexes, if you prefer, weren't joining in. The value side of the market simply didn't join. It rose, but it didn't rose, rise all that much. It basically kept up with the economy. But then in 2000, the bottom fell out, and those high-flying stocks fell on average around 75 or 80% in two years. While the value stocks that had been slugging along way behind the high growth stocks dropped a little bit and then rolled around and outperformed the growth stocks for the next several years. This, for whatever it's worth, has happened again. It happened in the 1970s. Uh, it certainly happened at the beginning of this century in the beginning with 2000. It, uh, it is one of those things that happens from time to time. Now, how long Will the high growth stocks continue to outperform and run off and leave everything else in dust? There's not much to it. But just be aware that those stocks are priced out into the future for perfection, and perfection doesn't happen. So it's, it's fun to join in, but if you've got money sitting over in that very, very high priced earnings ratio range of the, the seven stocks, recognize that that's speculation. Now, the interesting thing is the rest of the market, if you take those guys out, is priced quite reasonably and looks like it has, based on the earnings that are coming in, based on the gross domestic product, based on everything that we have out there, it looks like it has plenty of room to grow. So that doesn't probably give you a lot of useful information, but it's the information we have. It's, it's good information. Year, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's useful. The, the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury note, the yield slipped downward just a little bit to 4.03. Now, that's that's interesting. Uh, it's when it's in the trading range. It's been in from the upper threes to the very lower fours for goodness, a year now. And I think it's just hanging around there. Um, and I think the only thing that's interesting about interest rates continues to be the fact that 
very, very, very short-term treasuries are around 5.5%, uh, which is at the upper range of the Federal Reserve's guidance, which is where it's supposed to be. And as you go out along the treasury yield curve, there is what's called a belly, a sag in the middle, where uh, the 10-year is, is about the lowest interest rate of anything out there. And then it rises up a little bit towards the tail end to about 43 Um and it's just an inverted yield curve, and it's been inverted for a long time, and it is irritating a lot of pundits to no end that their inverted yield curve has not produced a recession last year. And then with the economic news that came out today, uh, it's even further from a recession. Uh, the um, WTI, the West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, fell all week in the, in the work week work week at 72.21. Here again, the pundits are disappointed because in the past, when there have been attacks on oil shipping around the in Southwest Asia, price of oil has shot up, and it isn't shooting up, and it isn't shooting. Despite the fact there is a constriction in supply because the a lot of the oil is now going around the south end of Africa rather than going through the Suez Canal, so as not to have missiles shot at it, which is slowing the flow of oil out of the uh, oil-producing countries like Saudi Arabia. That normally would cause the rates to go up, or not the rates, but the cost, the, the price per barrel around the world to go up significantly. It hasn't for, I think, a very simple reason. This is my opinion, although there's a lot of evidence to back it up. China's economy is slowing down. China is the second biggest oil consumer in the world after the United States. And they are claiming their economy isn't slowing. It's just growing less fast. But if it's using less oil, and it is using less oil than it used to use, that indicates it's slowing down. There are some other factors here. We are using less oil than we used to. In fact, we, mm -hmm. we peaked out in our oil use in around 2008. It looks like they peaked out around 2018. But the speed at which they are slowing down, and there's other things, looking at satellite imagery and looking at their lighting and so on, they're not using enough. They're using less lights than they did pre-pandemic. So they've had some growth since then, but it looks like they're slowing down. All the, all the ways that we can check without knowing for sure, because we don't really trust the data coming there, coming from them, uh, is that they're slowing down, not speeding up. And that's why they're using less oil they're also going electric quickly but their electric vehicles are not doing as well as the electric vehicles here they're exporting a bunch of them but the failure rate is high so these aren't good signs long term and does that wrap up the market it does all right well we got uh i've got a thing to bring up um during the pandemic we had podcasts coming out and we had radio programs that we were doing and we were watching the demographics of the unemployment changes because of the, the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, more women that wanted to work were working than men wanting to work as a percentage. There's a kind of technical detail there. Um, the unemployment rate for women was lower than men. Not significantly, but lower. Uh, and we were concerned during the pandemic because the unemployment rate for women went up much faster than the unemployment rate for men. And there's lots of cultural reasons why women stayed home with the children and men went back to work and all that good stuff. But there's been a growing trend in education, more than half by several percentage points, and that changes every year, but more than half 
of all college students are women. And by several points and up into the 4 or 5% range higher sometimes. What does that mean? Well, it means something we're probably all pretty familiar with. Women are generally smarter than men. Uh, I could get in trouble for saying that, but I won't get in trouble with the people that it counts with. <laughs> uh, so women are more employable. They're also fortunately, unfortunately, whatever, for economic purposes, more likely to be out of the workforce in their early careers because of children. So this isn't some kind of mystical thing. When you look at the numbers, people are going, where are you getting this data? How do you know this stuff? Well, because men don't have babies. The paternity leave generally is much shorter than maternity leave, and that influences unemployment. It influences length of career. It influences top pay. There's a lot of other stuff that it influences. There's also some big cultural biases. Now come forward to today and the unemployment rate in women across all races aged 16 to 64 is 3.3%. While the unemployment unemployment rate for men is 4.6%. That's 1.3% higher. That's big. That's bigger than any difference between races. So if you look at the overall employment and you say this race to that race, um, there's all kinds of um, demographic data available by that. Most of that is due to socioeconomic and education level. But there's a definite cultural thing still happening there. When it comes to women, they're more likely to have two part-time jobs than men. They're more likely to have two jobs than men. Men are more likely to have two full-time jobs than women are. Here's where the data starts ticking up, though. This is where the demographic change is a real deal rather than just a return to what we were pre-pandemic. The types of jobs that women are employed in are different now significantly. Service industry stuff, it's still very high, but we had a shift where a lot of women left doing restaurant work and went into other types of work. Significant shift. So more men are working in restaurants than pre-pandemic and less women. So where did they go? Lots of other places, but most of the other places have better long-term benefits, better kind of across the board we're looking at long-term career potential, women had a big jump up coming back from the pandemic. And that looks like a trend that's not slowing down. There are more women looking for work as a percentage than men working, looking for work at the moment. And yet the unemployment rate is higher for men. Why is that? Because when you look at the working population and the workforce, that's not the same as this is one of those things we we laugh about the, the AI answers the what's the workforce as a co- of a country and they give you the total population. They don't know what they're talking about yet. The workforce is a group of people that are employable. We generally consider that between the ages of 16 and 64, though it can go up above that. And what we're seeing is a higher participation rate um, for women than what we saw before. The participation rate right now for women is 72.4%. It was in the upper 60s pre-pandemic. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me something. It says that we have had a shift demographically. We are seeing more productivity and more demand for more workers, which means the participation rate isn't quite as high as with men. Men are at 78. 
But that topped out at 84% in the 1990s. 84% of the men in the workforce that wanted to be working, um, 84% of the men in that working age group were participating. And it was like 60% less than that of women. Now we're up to almost 73% women and 78% men. These, these are numbers that are long-term as we have less need for brute force muscles, more robots getting involved, more technical skills available, the, the, that's going to continue to shift. And it wouldn't be a bit surprising in 20 years to see more women, period, in the workforce than men, the participation rate being higher in women than men. Uh, and it's just fascinating to see. We have a, a question from Inquisitor John. Since we've been doing the podcast only, we haven't actually gotten to any questions from Inquisitor John. So this is Fantastic. Those of you that listened to our radio program in the past will recognize his. He's our most faithful questioner. And as is tradition, he sent us a digital picture of the paper version of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and there's an article in it called Commercial Property Hits Banks. Um, I, you can imagine a cartoon of that if you wish. Uh, his question is, more bank failures or ample reserves? Uh, do we see this development developing how do we see this developing as the loans come due? Um, do you want to jump in on that one? Sure. I, well, there's another article, at least in the digital version of the Wall Street Journal, that addresses this, why major U.S. cities are becoming a problem for foreign banks. This is an important thing to know. There's a couple of aspects to this. One, the reserves are up in U.S. banks. It's one of their the bankers are complaining, and as the earnings come in from bankers, which, by the way, have done very well, Mm -hmm. uh, they're complaining about the, they're, they're saying our earnings are likely to be down a little bit because the Federal Reserve is requiring more reserves. But this is the interesting thing. The problem is with inner city office buildings that are not likely to renew their leases. And when the owner of the building doesn't have the building leased, when it's sitting there empty, it's really hard to make the loan payments. And there is a big problem showing up there, which we've been talking about for some time. But here's an interesting little tidbit. U.S. banks have largely retreated from inner city office buildings over Correct. the years. Yeah. It is mostly foreign banks that are concentrated in office buildings to the point where uh, international banks have more concentrated loans in inner U.S. cities than U.S. banks do. And we've got a, a parallel to this um, in the late 90s, again, where we had foreign investment companies from Japan and Germany and the U.K. and China and Singapore coming and buying American properties. And there was this big, big craze at the time. Oh, no, they're going to take over. It was it was kind of scary for a lot of people. Uh, in fact, there's movies made out. If you look at Back to the Future, um, the the second Back to the Future movie, this is dating me because a lot of people go, what do you mean Back to the Future? The future that they were going to is now our past. So it's a little weird. Um, but they envisioned that uh, everyone learned Japanese, which by the way, I think is a great language and you could go ahead and learn it. And it would not hurt your business skills at all to know that. But that's what the trend was. The Japanese were buying everything. Um, and that's, that's important to recognize. The same thing's been happening during the pandemic. 
as these banks were saying, hey, we need to get out of this, there was a kind of a rush from the U.S. banks to get out of these loans and hand them off to foreign banks. So the United States banks, as you said, they've been complaining at high volume about the reserves that they have to have on hand because the Federal Reserve is concerned about the rising interest rates and the banks that failed last year and all that good stuff. This week, we had a little scare from uh, a bank that uh, was one of the purchasers of the failed banks and said, hey, our, our earnings are down because we have to absorb a bunch of the losses. And they had their their um, their stock drop 39%. It started to recover since then. So it's not like terrifying news, but it's one of those things where people are still n- nervous about banks. That's kind of a good sign long-term. And the thing that I have to come back to reminding people is that we're in a higher interest rate environment. And the, the danger on these commercial situations is that when they go to refinance their loans, it, it's going to be a lot more expensive than what they're paying currently. And they've got less people working in the building, so they might as well just sell it, which could cause the prices of the real estate to drop, which is collateral. You can see this as being a long-term danger. It is. It's absolutely a danger, but it's a danger that's been looming and known about for quite some time at this point. Um And the thing that I remind people about is that in a higher interest rate environment, banks tend to be more profitable. And when I say it like that, people go, oh, yeah, because they're the ones charging on the loans that are so much more expensive today. And this is why we're seeing those earnings from banks coming in high. They don't get to use as much of the earnings as they want to earn, as they want to use, but it's out there. So how do we see it playing out? There are going to be problems as these Uh, real estate positions in inner city San Francisco and Portland and Seattle come up for refinance as they the balloon notes come up. Um, And when they refinance, they're going to realize, hey, it costs a lot more to have this stuff. And then they're going to go to sell and the people that come to buy are going to look at the homeless people outside. Just demographically, by by the way, about one-tenth of one percent, one-tenth of that So one-tenth of one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of one percent is a normal uh, transitional homeless population. About about one-tenth of one percent is the normal homeless population, and that's doubled. So it's a tiny, tiny number, but it tends to be concentrated in places like what we're talking about. So when you have two times as many homeless people, where do they go? Well, they're going outside of the Starbucks and they're lying down out there because people come out of Starbucks with change in their pockets. They're going outside the convenience store. They're going to sit outside your office building. And so when if you're in the market to buy an office building and you go out there and you can't get to the door because there's homeless people there, you're probably not going to want to buy that office building, especially if the interest rates are high, even when those prices are coming down. And this is a demographic shift that happens every 40 years or so. If you look back to the 1980s, we had a massive outpouring of Um, 1970s, 1980s, the inner cities became difficult places to be. We had a different version of it in the 1940s when people came back from the war and they got their education through the GI Bill. And just side note on the women employment situation, a lot of people went back to school and it was, as I said, majority women. Um, So this is a good sign. Back after the GI Bill, people came back and they went to the inner city and it was revitalized and the inner city became beautiful and then they slowly left over the next 10 years or so. Well, why did they leave? Simple answer again, 
kids. When you have kids, you generally don't want to live two blocks away from your favorite bar. Before kids, that's a great place to live. After kids, not so much. So they left. They went to the suburbs, and it happened over a period of time. So you have this demographic shift to the inner cities and then back out again, and then into the inner cities and then back out again. This time it got accelerated hard. And that's what we're seeing on the commercial property situation because we're there's about 10% of the people that used to work in an office building that will never work in an office building again, not because of some horrible disease that caused them to get sick and not be able to go back to work. No, because they were programmers and they would rather be antisocial alone in their room than be antisocial in a group of other people being antisocial together in a group. Uh, that's just a trend that's not going to reverse. First, the, the, that entire population is getting more. That 10% is probably a low number. So all of that is going to affect commercial real estate. There's, how it affects it is can't be determined specifically. Looks like you have something to, to throw in here before well, we wrap up. A couple of little tidbits of information about these non-performing real estate loans and so on. First off, um, and I think this is this is interesting. Historically, owner-occupied commercial real estate has had the highest rate of non-performing loans. Mm-hmm. It's now got the lowest rate. It's sitting at about 0.75%, which is insignificant. The non-owner-occupied, which normally have been far more stable and have a lower rate of non-performance, is now up to about 1.5% of loans. What does that mean? That means people that are renting... Yeah, they've got renters in there. If they've got renters in them, they're in more trouble than places that they own and occupy themselves. The other little bit of information I think is fascinating is according to Moody's, the largest number of vacant offices, the, the, the largest rise in vacant offices by absolute numbers, were in San Francisco and Austin. And Austin, this is the first thing I've seen out of Austin that indicates that something other than a gigantic boom is underway. Well, I mean, but it's just it's real a estate prices. Little bit of information. Prices in general in Austin are down about fifteen percent at this point. Yeah. Um, so all right, th- there's there's going to be a problem, but I think it in, at least in the United States, the regulators are fully aware of it. The banks are fully aware of it. They're announcing it in advance. It's not going to come as a big surprise and cause a crisis. Well, if you would like to talk to us in person or even remotely. Um, if you would like to give us something to talk about on the podcast or have a question for us individually, want somebody to look at your investments, that's what we do for a living. Um, our contact information, locally, our phone number is... 254-947-1111. And toll free, should you still have a landline, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com, where we have a veritable treasure trove of ancient radio program recordings and podcasts. You can find podcasts wherever you found this one. Um, And if you would like, again, to contact us, the contact form is there. You can email us directly at jake at tpwc.com and jeff at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. Until next episode, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.